in the early days, there were all kinds of things that would be said. One being um, when President Obama's book came in, we don't really publish people with uh, non-traditional names. The sad part about all of that and these years in publishing are the books that never got through. We don't even know what we're missing. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. Ramon, we are going to be talking about your incredible interview with Tracy Sherrod, the editorial director of Amistad Press. And we also have a fascinating ethical quandary from one of our listeners who wrote in with a question about the writing process. But before we get to any of that, uh, you're in the home stretch of the book pre-publication process, that moment when you're bringing the horse to market. I know a lot of artists, you know, probably me included, we could get a bit shy and conflicted about marketing our work, about getting it out there, about asking people to buy it, about essentially saying, I believe in this and I want you to give me some money because I believe you'll like it too. This is your third time around with that. Uh, What's it been like for you this time? I mean, I think the funny thing is that when you talk to, when I talk to anyway, artists I really admire, they all acknowledge that that hustle that you're talking about is really an important part of the thing. You know, there's no point in doing something if no one's going to see it. There's no point in making something if no one can sort of engage with it. And you kind of have to just learn to do that tap dance, you know, and really I can't complain. I mean, it's a great gift to be a writer who's paid to write books and then ask to talk about them in order to sell them. And there's plenty of anxiety and there's plenty of fear mixed in with all of that gratitude and joy. But, you know, I have to pace myself because I still have a couple of months until October when this thing arrives in the stores. Right. Yes, of course. It's a marathon, not a sprint. The exactly. Pre-book publication process. Um, and, you know, speaking of the business of publication, you know, we have a guest this week, Tracy Sherrod, who is deeply involved in the business of publishing as the editorial director of Amistad Press. What can you tell us about Tracy and why you wanted to speak with her? You know, I lurk on book and publishing adjacent Twitter. So I've been watching a lot of the bigger conversations about race in this country play out as discussions of race inside the book business. In my conversation with Tracy, I refer to an article by Lauren Michelle Jackson that was published at Vulture about the purpose of the anti-racist reading list, those curated syllabi of books to read whenever there's a big galvanizing cultural moment that is about race. And then there was a trending topic on Twitter that really caught my attention um, under the hashtag publishing paid me, in which a host of writers disclosed how much they had made for their books. Uh, It was just a way of kind of freeing up some data and showing that maybe one of the business's systemic problems is its economics, that maybe white writers are making more money than black writers. And we did see some white writers talking about pretty big advances and some sort of well-known black writers talking about comparatively smaller advances. It's a very confusing business, and it's hard to extrapolate a lot from this information. But I do think that that trending topic and the conversation around it showed that people are really interested right now in looking at systemic racism. And I thought it would be very useful and illuminating to talk to one of the handful of Black gatekeepers in the publishing business. And that's why I went to Tracy Sherrod. In your conversation, the name Sister Soldier comes up. You know, I think it's been a while probably for some of our listeners since they remember the Sister Soldier moment and uh, uh, Bill Clinton's, you know, brief use of her as kind of a political prop. So could you, you know, rewind the clock to the early 90s and tell us a bit about who Sister Soldier was in our culture in that moment? It's a very specific blast from the past. And so just as a refresher, She is a writer and activist. And during the run-up to the presidential election, she said something about violence in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict and the riots that ensued in Los Angeles. 
Bill Clinton, who was then campaigning for the presidency, denounced this. And that act of denunciation has become known as a sister soldier moment. Maybe unfairly so, but it's that particular inflection point where a political movement has to disavow something as too extreme. And we saw this when candidate Obama broke ties very publicly with the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. So it's a funny thing to hear her name in the context of her as a human being, as a writer and an artist, and to hear a little bit about this sort of unlikely pivotal role that Sister Soldier played in the career that Tracy Sherrod has made for herself. Well, Ruman, I can't wait to hear about that and all sorts of other things in your interview with Tracy Sherrod. So let's take a listen. Okay, I'm someone who publishes books for a living, so I feel like I have a little bit of insight into what an editor does. But I think TV and movies give us this idea that the editorial director would be sitting in a really fancy office lined with books, and they'd have a pencil in their hand and be working quietly and maybe having a scotch at the end of the day. Is that what your days actually look like? No, that's the fantasy. So the bulk of your hours are spent? Doing meetings and preparing paperwork to make offers, chasing books. How did you begin your career? You know, I'll tell you this. So it was time to graduate from college. And, you know, I was so into into books and just reading and all that stuff. So it came time to graduate from college. And um, my college roommate, who is a judge now, She said, what are you going to do? You know, what kind of job are you going to have? What are you going to do with your life? And I said, you know, I hadn't even thought about that yet. Um, And so she's like, well, you're really late. So why don't you call up those people and ask them for a job? And I'm like, what people? She goes, you always have a book in your hand like now. Just call them up and ask them for a job. And I did. And it was the feminist press. And they said yes. And so I moved from Michigan to New York. And when I was on the phone with the feminist press, you know, I didn't want to ask how much I would be paid. I didn't want to ask all of these questions that one should ask because, you know, I wanted to make sure I had the job. But when I got there, I found out that it was a $50 a week internship. But I would not be deterred. And um, so I got a job at Doubleday Bookstore at night and worked at the feminist press during the day. After six weeks, I was hired permanent, um, full-time, so which was really wonderful. And then Marie Brown was on the board there, and she helped me to get um, a job in more mainstream publishing. I, I ended up at Henry Holt & Company. Wonderful experience. But I left Henry Holt when I went to my publisher and I asked her to read um, Sister Soldier's The Coldest Winter Ever, which was on submission. And she told me no, she wouldn't read it because someone in the house had said that Sister Soldier was racist. And so I told her, I said, you know, in the past 10 years, The only people that have been called racist are people of color. And I'm really concerned about that. And I'm going to resign today. And so I did. Um, Emily Blessler at Simon & Schuster had also been talking to me. And so I called her up after my discussion with my publisher to see if the job was still available. And she said yes. And so then I went over to Simon & Schuster, worked there for four years. Um, About three months after I arrived, Charles Harris reached out to me and asked me to come over to be the editorial director. Working for Amistad had always been a dream of mine, but I didn't feel like I I could just quit after being somewhere for three months. So I feel very grateful and thankful to people like Jonathan Burnham who hired me at um, Amistad um, to be the editorial director. It's a dream of mine. 
Um, it had been a dream of mine, and it's materialized, and I love it beyond belief. Before I even started working there, years and years before, you know, I envisioned the kind of books that I would publish. Because we, we're interested in a variety of things. And it's not just about race that we want to talk about, and that's not all that's going on in our lives, although unfortunately, you know, it definitely nags at us all day long, keeps chasing us and running us down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really struck by a couple of things that you've just said. One is that Charles Harris, the founder of Amistad, had actually thought of you for this job years before you ended up taking it. So what year did Jonathan Burnham hire you to take over Amistad? Um... April 28, 2013. Okay, so you've been there. <laughs> I'll never forget. <laughs> so it's been about seven years. That's incredible. Yes. And the other thing that is so striking to me is this conflict you describe with your former publisher when you were an editor at Holt, declining to read a, a submission that an editor had brought in. That seems to me, and I think maybe people who are listening to this conversation and don't know about publishing, that seems to me extraordinary, out of the ordinary, for a publisher to decline to even look at the work, because that just doesn't seem to me like it's the way that this business runs. And the fact that you, I mean, we talk about microaggression a lot when you talk about like race inside of the workplace, but that just seems like a regular aggression to me. And the fact In that In the early days, there were all kinds of things that would be said, you know, in the early days, the the 80s and 90s. One being um, when President Obama's book came in, we don't really, you know, publish people with uh, non-traditional names. I mean, you're talking about Dreams from My Father, yes. the, the and, memoir and I, that he wrote when he was a senator. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and it came in before he was well-known the first time it was published, yeah. Right. The sad part about all of that and these years in publishing are the books that never got through. We don't even know what we're missing. I know a few very important books that we're missing that would contribute to the dialogue, but those are books that no one wanted to buy at the time. And that's the real loss to publishing. Amistad began life as a anthology of black writing. It was founded by an editor named Charles Harris. It had sort of many different iterations. Eventually, it sort of spun off into an independent imprint, publishing works by black writers. In 1999, HarperCollins, which is one of the big mega corporations in, that control publishing in this country, acquired that imprint and its whole list. And I'm going to name some writers on that list. Walter Dean Myers, Jacqueline Woodson, Zora Neale Hurston, Gwendolyn Brooks, Edward P. Jones, and Tozaki Shange. These are the literary names, but the point of view is Black. It's a press for Black writing. I wonder if you think that that's fair to say, if that's a fair statement, and then if you can talk about what that endeavor means inside a big corporation like HarperCollins. Yes, we publish for the Black audience specifically, but mostly what we're offering is a chance for writers of color and Black writers in particular, a platform in which to publish their work. Um, we don't try to make them say one thing or another. Um, we believe that these books live, you know, 100% in their truth. And so, yeah, so Charles started the press, you know, a long time ago in 1986. And he worked for Doubleday as an editor. And before he left, and he left to start Amistad, to go to Howard and to begin um, building Amistad Press. And, and some of the books that he left were actually edited by Toni Morrison, including The Greatest by Muhammad Ali. So Charles was an extraordinary man and a visionary when he started this press. And so we did begin with some anthologies, collecting important black writers and their thoughts 
um, from John Oliver Killens to Toni Morrison to to a whole whole bunch of people where there wasn't exactly a platform for that back then. And the 1980s seems so recent, you know, to a lot of people. But, you know, black publishing is still very, very new. And, and the market, I believe, we're only tapping like maybe 0.1%. There's more stories to be told. There's a large audience for them. And publishing as an industry needs to recognize that. They're seeing it a little bit now um, when the bestseller list, you know, like paperback nonfiction this week, all of the books are about race or racism, and the majority of them are written by um, African-American authors. And they're seeing, you know, the purchasing power, also believing that there's, there's a large white audience that are coming to the books at this, t- at this moment, which I do believe that is the case. But I also think that all of us are coming to these books. So the culture right now, as you have intimated and as the bestseller list reflects, is having this sort of big conversation about race. And it didn't begin in this moment, you know, and I think a Black grandparent, for example, would laugh at us if they heard anyone suggest that this just started. But I do think, and I think a lot of people feel this way, that the unjust death of George Floyd feels like a specific moment, like a specific galvanizing moment. People are looking for some kind of insight, some kind of answer. What do you feel that this moment offers for Amistad as a publisher? And do you feel a particular responsibility to rise to that moment? Well, we've been doing the work, you know, for many years. And I believe in the next year, actually, in 2021, um, people will be able to see the results of that work. We have a lot of important writers on the list Um, important people we need to hear from, such as Marcus Hunter on reparations, because there are many ways to provide reparations um, in addition to money. And yes, we want to keep the money on the list, (laughs) but uh, there are other other means. You know, there's um, Julianne Malveaux, who is doing a huge discussion on um, the power of black money and how we use it to advance ourselves instead of adorn ourselves. And um, so there's lots of important work that's going to feed into this discussion. You're speaking specifically about forthcoming books on the list that are political in their nature, but Amistad also publishes memoir. It also publishes, you know, commercial fiction. Do you think that those endeavors are also political by virtue of being at Amistad or by virtue of being Black voices in a marketplace that's largely controlled by white forces? Well, yes, because I believe, first of all, they're in a place, uh, a house, an imprint of freedom and of freedom fighters. And so we've done a lot of literary fiction and some commercial fiction and all of the messages in those books are about liberation in one form or another. There is a writer named Lauren Michelle Jackson, and she recently wrote a really a piece that I found really interesting for Vulture, where she was looking at lists of black texts that pop up whenever there's a whenever there's a galvanizing incident of racial violence. A lot of the magazines and websites will publish a list of like, here's what to read to think about race. And this is what Jackson wrote. Quote. Aside from the contemporary teaching texts, genre appears indiscriminately. Essays slide against memoir and folklore, poetry squeezed on either side by sociological tomes. This, maybe ironically but maybe not, reinforces an already pernicious literary divide that books written by or about minorities are for educational purposes, racism and homophobia and stuff, wholly segregated from matters of form and grammar lyric and scene. I'd really like to hear your perspective on this because as you just said, you publish books about race, but you publish books about everything. Do you think readers should be looking at books as curative or as medicine for toxicity and racism in this culture? Well, in the, in the 1970s, you know, that's the first period in which, um, you know, black books and black authors were really making um, 
um, entryways into the business. And this is because they realized at the Board of Education that, you know, all of these books with all this American history in it is not right. What should we do about it? Well, they didn't want to correct it because that would have, I guess, been a big job. So what they decided to do was have, you know, supplemental materials about African-American history, about, you know, Indian history, et cetera, et cetera. And that's actually how Toni Morrison got into the business, um, working on those kind of texts. And then, um, so initially, um, people of color literature was, was for the purpose of educating others and, and ourselves, too, about, about history and things. So I think that has continued, but no, I think, you know, definitely the purpose of all books should be to educate someone about something. Um, but no, I think books should be for escape, but still learning. Um, books should be for, for pleasure because, you know, think about what you're saying. If um, all black books were about racism, you know, where would we be able to escape it? Um, and get away from it. And I think we need those kind of books as well. So I, I, a beautiful world would be where everybody read everything, because I do believe that um, black people do read everything. But yeah, so it should be definitely educational, but that is not where it should stop. And that is not all it should be. Do you think there's a generational change here? Because also, if you are a uh... 17-year-old reader, if you're a 22-year-old reader, you may never have heard of the Salt Eaters. You may never have you you may never have heard of Jasmine Ward if you're a young person. Like a book that is only 6 years old came that would have come out when you were a teenager and it might suddenly seem new and relevant to you. Like do you think that younger readers are an underlooked resource for commercial publishing today? Actually, no. I, I think um, I'm, I'm paying very close attention to young people and, and what their interests are and, and their reading habits. And I would say that this generation of, um, of young people, the ones who are just entering the workforce, the ones that are in colleges right now, and even younger, they're reading much more diverse literature. And I believe that their buying habits will reflect this as they get older. And so I think that's also going to be a contributor to, to enlarging um, the black book buying audience. And there are huge sets of contemporary readers, young and old, who don't look at the New York Times, who don't look at the lists in BuzzFeed. They look at Instagram, they read the comments, and they get excited and they say, oh, I've never heard of this book. I'm excited about it. I want to read it now, you know? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, because um, in my younger early days in publishing, um, one of my books was on the cover of the New York Times Book Review and, and everybody was super, super excited. And I was like, oh, no. It means it's never going to reach my audience, you know, because at the time, you know, black people just were not invested in the times in yeah. any way. Yeah. And um, I believe that's changed significantly, especially with people like Nicole Hannah. So marketing is really key. And we have to let the word out more about books. We'll be back with more of Ruman Alam's conversation with editor Tracy Sherrod in a moment. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration or discipline, you can send them to us at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll even put those questions to our esteemed guests. Welcome back to Working. I'm Isaac Butler. We now return to Ruman's conversation with Tracy Sherrod. What percentage of your work is managerial, is wrestling with, you know, your, the publishing people wrestling for, like, the bigger budgets, the marketing power, whatever, and then what percentage of your work is creative and sitting down with an author or making a phone call to an author and saying, like, think about doing this, think about doing that, like, 
I want you to push this book in this direction or that direction. Like, what does that split look like to you? I've been fighting for a lot of that time during quarantine. And so I have been doing that with my authors and, and particularly a great conversation with Ursula Burns, who is the CEO of um, Xerox and her forthcoming book, which I am, you know, thoroughly in, in, enjoying. But I would say that every day from nine to five is managerial, administrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then maybe um, two hours beyond the nine to five on a given day, still doing administrative things. And, and administrative is like, you know, at the moment, like writing jacket copy, getting blurbs, mm-hmm. um, trafficking books through production, covering permissions, you know, getting the photos, getting, you know, all of those types of things. And then, you know, then maybe one hour a night, Monday through Friday of say, you know, reading submissions and deciding what I will be pursuing or not. And then Saturday and Sunday, full blowout, you know, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., you know, with breaks for some food or some or some exercise or something. That's when we're editing and writing our editorial letters. And this yeah. is a very, very, you know, time-consuming process. And we really want to be in it. We really want to be in it. Because when something goes wrong with your books or something's not quite right in them, your stomach hurts. Every time that book is mentioned, your stomach hurts, you know. Yeah. So you don't want that. So we work really, really hard. It's why people don't see editors out and about much unless it's an author event that they need to go to. I don't think that it's the case for all editors, but it's particularly true for Amistad because we're trying to build Amistad. And we're 35 next year, but it seems in examining its history and going over it really super carefully the growth will happen after the results. Yeah. After the results. Yeah. I'm not sure it's going to happen before the results. You know, I don't think anybody's going to come along and, and say, let's give this imprint everything it needs. Mm-hmm. In publishing, when they're setting up other imprints, they give them everything they need from the start. Then you yeah. prove the results. But um, for black and black people in publishing, it's the reverse. You got to do the work. Maybe you'll be noticed. But being noticed is not what any of us are in it about. It's all about the books. As long as we can do the books, we will survive. Mm -hmm. We will, you know, move forward no no matter what. I just want to walk back for a second to clarify what an editorial letter is for the listener. So you'll spend a Saturday or Sunday going over a book making notes, figuring out what you think about how the book is put together, how it's structured, how it's written. And the first time I heard the phrase editorial letter, I thought like, oh, it's going to be like an email, like a nice email from somebody. (laughs) An editorial letter is an exhaustive, very long document in which, you know, and it's, it's, it's a subjective thing. Every editor has their own way of doing it. The editorial letters I have received have been, I mean, exhausting and long and thoughtful and it's an editor saying on this page you use this word but I don't think that's right but it's also an editor saying please think back structurally to the very like foundations of this book and reconsider how x and y work and all of like this very close analysis of a thing that's still in process is that what kind of editorial letter do you like to write yes mine are very detailed (laughs) very very detailed you know the last one was like 12 single spaced (laughs) pages so there are the track changes in the manuscript calling out this and that Mm -hmm. and the other thing content here move this there why is this here what are the answers to this you know all of that um, are in the track changes and then I write a corresponding letter um, to put the track changes in context. This is a lot of work. And then we go over each, yeah, and then we <laughs> go over each one about why I want this done, why yeah. I want that done, yeah. and, and everything. Because once you break it down and explain it that way, the majority of people are like, I am so ready 
you know, they're motivated, they see, you know, clarity and they see the path in which they can take to really bring their book home. As a writer, like speaking as somebody who occupies the other side of that equation, when you get those letters and you open them up and you see that it's 12 pages, like you kind of have like a heart attack and euphoria at the same time because you're like oh my god I have so much work to do but also you're like wow somebody paid this much attention to me and is trying to save this book like they it's a leap of faith on the part of the editor that she cares this much about this book and is gonna like tell me how to fix it and you shouldn't think save you shouldn't think she's saving the book (laughs) just because that letter is long and detailed does not mean there's something really wrong with the book. Yeah, yeah. It's just how to enhance the book. And so much of an editor's work, I mean, that is where the creativity comes in, but also, even though you're very visible and a presence inside of the office, the editor is kind of an invisible figure. Like, the nature of the job is that you, you're not there. Your writer is the person who is doing this work. You're just helping get them there, sort of like a... Like a personal trainer might try and get you ready for a triathlon, but like you're the, they're the one who is running the triathlon. You're the one who's going back to the office and it's not about glory or fame. There are very few, I mean, people inside book publishing know who editors are, but there are very few people who become sort of famous for being an editor. Do you think there's a certain kind of personality that's drawn to that work? The ideal person to be an editor I think it's still the person who doesn't want to be the center of the room. Um, The person who wants to be an observer. A strong reader, someone who who can read anything. Doesn't matter if it's something they're interested in or not. Mm -hmm. Um, They can still enjoy and enjoy the content. To make it, you have to be social quite social, going out, being out, communing with with authors. And I think people who really enjoy the creative process, who are willing to have those conversations with uh, writers and find them fascinating, listening to, to things about like how they plan on structuring a book, you know, who find that fascinating and who, when they're reading a book, Um, can see the different literary techniques and devices that um, an author has used and appreciate those. So a close reader, someone who can be interested in almost anything, I think make good editors. Because they have lots of questions, they're very curious people. And I think having curiosity. But if you want to be famous, if you want to be, you know, the life of the party, I don't really think you know, editorial is the way to go. Another thing that we saw on social media in the last couple of months is this hashtag publishing paid me in which writers inside of the publishing business were speaking very candidly about how much money they had made. And one of the revelations that I must confess that even I found very surprising was how little really, really successful writers like N.K. Jemison or Jasmine Ward had been paid. Jasmine Ward had made, I think, got a $25,000 advance after already having won the National Book Award. And there was a lot of surprise, I think, on Twitter about this from people who are not themselves Black. Like, I think a lot of my Black colleagues were like, oh, yes, that makes that computes to me because you always have to sort of go through that extra hurdle. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised by that. You know, for Black authors, um, that publishing paid me hashtag was very, very interesting on a lot of levels. But it's super competitive to get a Black author. The advances are going, you know, through the roof. And I can't say always that that's a good thing. You know, maybe, uh, sure, some people would like a larger money up front. And there are people who have received large advances up front. And one thing I would have to say is this. If I have to give a message to authors. If you're shopping a black book 
And at the end of that auction, none of the black people have come to that amount of money for to give you know, to for that advance. You're you're probably in trouble already. You're going to have some earnout problems because I believe the black publishing professionals are the experts. What we should do is we should just back up for a second and explain the economics of book publishing. So a writer comes into an imprint with a book and says, I have this book, it's, it's, here it is, it's done, or here's the proposal for what I want to do. And the publishing company comes back and says, we will give you this advance, which is an investment in the future of this book. And let's say the advance is $50,000 that will carry you through the process of publishing the book or writing the book if it's a proposal. And then you'll get a check for $25,000 when you sign the contract or $10,000 when you sign the contract. You know, it'll come to you in a couple of payments and then the book will go on sale and it'll start earning money. And once those royalties top $50,000, they start going right into your pocket. And that's how you start earning money. So if you get paid a million dollars for a book, that book has to sell a lot of copies in order for the royalties to start showing up, in order for the publisher who took that gamble on you to start making any money on that gamble. And so what you're saying is that it's more responsible for you to think about the advance and calibrate it against what the book is actually going to perform in the market that you understand. When it comes to advances, it's important to earn out your advance or come close to it. Then you're perceived as a successful author and then more money will come and more opportunities will come. But once you're overpaid for a book, I'm not sure where your career is after that because it's going to be difficult to sell another book. And I think it's really important for people to listen when the authors are going around and they're having the meetings. They really need to listen to what's going on, you know, and they need to understand things like, you know, if you're using a ghostwriter, no, you do not have to go with your agent's friend's wife, you know, you, know, you do not. And, and things like that. And I want, you know, authors to know that you're paying your agent. They are not paying you. And so you need to take an active lead in that relationship and ask the important questions. Okay, if I'm getting this advance, how many copies do I need to earn out to make this work? And who else has, has sold that number of copies? Yeah. And then they'll know what's realistic or unrealistic in their situation. Then they'll also know if their advance is fair or not. Um, at Amistad, I try to be as physically responsible as possible because I can't overpay for authors because that's counted, you know, on my imprints P&L. Yeah. And, um, and I want to be around tomorrow. And publishing that one person and not being around tomorrow is not worth it to me. How do you feel like heading into, this is like a big cultural moment. Your imprint is turning 35 next year. How do you feel? Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel pessimistic? Do you feel good about the direction of Amistad and the, and the literary culture generally? I'm feeling really good. And I feel very confident that Amistad is going to receive the resources that it needs in order to to be, become the premier African-American publisher. We are that in name right now, but there are huge things I wanna do to solidify that so that the next generation is in place to take it over. We have to build a company that lives, and so we need that. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— 
Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ruman, it is always a breath of fresh air when a major gatekeeper in an industry is actually honest about their work. And it also seems like due to Amistad's position as a publisher of black authors for a largely black audience, she gets to also be a real champion as well. I was particularly interested in what she said about the lost great African-American books, the ones that were never published or perhaps published but ignored by readers or even their own publishing house. These works that could have gone on to have great impact today. In the theater world, there is a whole canon of black plays that are wide widely ignored unless you're taking an undergraduate class in African-American theater. Uh, But I think at least in theater, that's just beginning to change with some of the season announcements for next season, although we obviously have a long way to go. I too thought that that was an extraordinary point. You know, Tracy is an optimist about the future, but she's candid about the past and about those missed opportunities. You know, our black citizens have suffered, absolutely. But, you know, There's another way of looking at it and saying, like, the whole culture has suffered. Mm -hmm. Systemic racism robs the culture of masterpieces that we never even learn about. And this is one of a million reasons to address these persistent problems. Yeah, and, you know, one thing I was really struck by was that point that you brought up. And and you brought it up in the introduction to this episode, too, um, that black art is about more than educating white audiences about black pain. And black art is more than just discussing racism. And often it can very quickly get kind of shoved into those pigeonholes, particularly in these kinds of moments of national crisis, which are ironically drumming up a big audience for the work at the same time. Tracy said this really great thing about Amistad's books being about liberation in one form or another. And it seems to me that one of the forms of liberation is liberating the individual artist from racialized expectations of the work they're going to create. I love that way of thinking about it. You know, the onus on Black writers to illuminate the Black experience, it's very silly. Artists need freedom. And there are, of course, many Black writers who are engaged in that endeavor, who are really thinking about the Black experience through the lens of race. But there are just as many who don't give a hoot about it, who have some whole other project. Black books are not medicine for white readers. They're not a corrective. They are art worth engaging with on its own terms. You know, this is something that drove me absolutely bananas after Toni Morrison died, is the way that people talked about Toni Morrison's accomplishment as a as a racialized accomplishment, which of course it was. It, you know, it's the absolute pinnacle of Black literature on the one hand. You know, she was a genius. But she was not engaged in a project of educating a bunch of people who didn't actually care about race about race. Her project was much more complex and much more, it's akin to Faulkner's, you know, Toni Morrison was a genius. And to talk about her as someone that you should pick up to help you learn empathy in moments of political crisis is absolutely baffling to me. It is absolutely baffling to me and robs Morrison of her great artistic accomplishment, you know, which is just, it's impossible to overstate actually what she accomplished as a novelist. And so it's just so baffling that we, and so reductive the way that we talk about black art. Yes, absolutely. And I I think though, you know, something you just mentioned there, it intersects with another pet peeve of mine. So while we're airing our pet peeves, uh, uh, which has to do with the insistence that art's value lies in its ability to generate empathy. Yes. Which is like a thing that art can do. That's wonderful. Do not get me wrong. That is a wonderful thing about art, but it's not the only thing that art does that, that, uh, and sometimes art does the exact opposite. And so I think there's a way in which that fallacy and, you know, really particular, racialized fallacies intersect in very dangerous ways. The notion that art must like perform some function for you, must efficiently help you accomplish something, 
it strikes me as like very American and like very sadly capitalist. Like the idea that it's only worth sitting down and spending, you know, 17 hours reading The Bluest Eye if you're going to get something out of it. Well, you're going to get transcendence. Like, right. is that not worth it? Like, is that <laughs> not enough? Do you also need to learn to feel something about strangers? And also, if you don't already know how to feel something about strangers, you have much bigger problems. <laughs> yes. Yes. Of course, one of the remarkable things about all of this is that all of this also has to exist, as you said, within capitalism and book publishing as much as we like to talk about it like it's not a business or like it's a bad business or like no one understands it as a business, it is still a business. Amistad is a for-profit company. And as Tracy Sherrod put it, you know, she has to make money or she won't have a job anymore to champion these books. And I think for a lot of people, the actual business practices of the publishing industry are extremely opaque. And by a lot of people, I am including myself and I'm guessing you. Yeah. You know, what, what is your feeling about that? Do you, is it still opaque to you? Do you feel like you've learned stuff? Does it make any sense? I mean, I definitely in this conversation with Tracy tried to kind of show off what little knowledge I have. And I'm just anticipating the emails from the literary agents and other business folk who are, might be listening saying, oh, no, you're totally wrong. There's a lot of confusing language about what an advance is or what a, you know, what a profit and loss statement shows about the list inside of a house. There's all this language that you have to learn. And if you're very lucky, as I have been, you have an agent who is smart and helps you guide you through all of this confusing language, all of these sort of complex financial arrangements. Um, yeah, art and capital are inextricably intertwined, at least in the system in which we operate currently. And, yeah. you know, it's n- maybe neither good nor bad. It's just the fact, and it's something that you need to look at directly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this week... I'm very excited because we have a listener question. I feel like I feel like Isaac, you have like a secret desire to really advise our listeners, and it's very <laughs> sweet. Like, I, I I hope that everyone who is listening will take this to heart. Isaac really does want us to be able to provide some insight for you. So, uh, you know, I I, I want to be uh, in conversation with our listeners, and this is a fun way to do it. I think. Yeah. Um. So this letter comes to us from Emily, who has a, a bit of an ethical quandary. Dear Working, I wrote a novel that remains in the proverbial drawer because it started out as a nugget that happened to a friend and the family it's based on seemed too identifiable. The situation happened 15 years ago. The husband in the family has since died. What do you think? Try to get it published, knowing the chances are low for an unpublished writer anyway, or keep it in the computer and move on to something else? Ruman, what do you think? I'm not sure really how morality relates to art making. And I think it's an open question or I think it's an endless debate because there's no expert, there's no authority, there's no governing body. You know, you can't like go to the rabbi and say like, is this okay or is this not okay? And, you know, only the individual writer knows the purity of their motives and the fairness of what they're doing. You know, I'll say this. I steal all the time. I eavesdrop when I'm out in public. I'm a horrible eavesdropper. And I fictionalize things that do not belong to me by right. I use circumstances and details from the lives of people I know or have met and turn them into anecdotes or dressing inside of a larger whole. I've used names that I like. I mean, I'm really like a merciless thief. And the one thing I'll say is that no one who I've actually stolen from has ever identified that, maybe because they've never read my work. Um, So that's one thing. And the other thing I'll say is that it seems fair to me, but then I'm not the one who is being fictionalized. Like, I don't know how I would feel if, Isaac, you wrote a novel about me. You know, yes, yes. Uh, well, I don't imagine that I could ever contain the multitudes of <laughs> Ruman Alam in uh, in fiction. You know, it's interesting because my writing is primarily nonfiction, so I am primarily telling other people's stories very overtly, not without any disguise. Um, and they have to trust me when I call them up and say, "Tell me your story," that I'm going to do it uh, in a way that is 
at the very least honest, even if they don't like how they come across. And I take that obligation extremely seriously. I think when you move to fiction, the obligations are different. And there's a lot of writers who have written a lot of very pithy one-liners about this, like Joan Didion's writers are always selling someone out, right? Or uh, there's an episode of Girls where Lena Dunham's character uh, says, everything is my business before going to spy on a, on one of her friends. You know, so, so I think it is the kind of thing that it's very difficult to make generalizations about. All you can really do is put yourself in the friend's shoes and be like, if they did this to me, would I be hurt by it? That is not, though, the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. If the answer to that question is yes, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to give up on the project. You could talk to them about it. You could try to disguise it and fictionalize it further so that they wouldn't figure it out. You could decide that getting the work out there is more important than that relationship, which is a completely fair decision to make. It's just that those questions lead to other questions that will eventually lead you to uh, what you want to do with this particular work. But there is no shame in borrowing from the lives of those around you to create fiction. I don't know of really any work of fiction that doesn't contain at least a bit stolen from real life. I think that's right. I think it's very hard to answer, but I liked... I, I too, really enjoyed getting a question. So please, I hope that our listeners will send us more. And Emily, if you're listening, let us know what you think. And to all of our listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Tracy Sherrod for being our guest this week. An enormous thanks, as always, to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Isaac Butler, oh wait, that's me, and writer Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>